please turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at verses, uh, chapter 3 verse 22 to chapter 4 verse 1, carrying on our series in Colossians. And the title for this morning's message is Serving Christ in Our Daily Work. Serving Christ in Our Daily Work. Let me read then from verse 22, Colossians 3, 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, to be a Christian is, as we have seen so many times already in this letter, a radically life-changing, hope-giving perspective-transforming, thanksgiving-infusing thing. We have, we here this morning, have been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We, if we're Christians, have died and been raised with Christ. Uh, These words are not Christian cliché. These things are actually true and true of us if we are believers. Our lives have been changed and are being changed by the power of God's gospel and by the mighty working of God for us and in us. And every Sunday we come together like this to be reminded of these gospel realities and refreshed by them and to rejoice together in them. Sundays are a gift, a gift from God. And although we come in here hopefully honest and real, bringing various challenges and difficulties and distractions into church, Sundays of of all days, I think, are still generally the easiest day of the week to live as a Christian. Sunday is the easiest day to at least make a go of obeying Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The easiest day of the week, I think, to try and do that is Sunday. But what about Mondays or Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, maybe even Saturdays? What about that big chunk of our daily lives called work? What are we meant to do with that bit of our lives? How does that connect to making all of life about knowing and worshipping Jesus? That's not nearly so easy, is it? It's not nearly so easy to work out how to seek the things that are above when we're knee-deep in the nitty-gritty day-to-day toil of work or school. It can feel like there's this massive disconnect between what seems to be our calling in Christ on the one hand and what we have to do in our work for 40 or more hours a week on the other. How, we might wonder, am I to find time to serve Christ when I seem forever destined to fill my week with emptying bedpans, cooking meals, teaching classes, balancing finances, 
taking phone calls, washing linen, correcting children, attending lectures, doing homework, shopping for groceries, fixing things that keep breaking, and commuting here, there, and everywhere in the Bristol traffic. I do hope, actually, there's no one that's doing all of those things, because that would be crazy. But those are the kind of things, to name just a few, that might occupy our working week. And if life involves doing all of those things, when are we supposed to find time to serve Christ? Well, one option is to try and squeeze him into the tiny, tiny gaps in an average working day. As one writer, Kent Hughes, recalls, he said, I once had an employer tell me that he had become skeptical about Christian employees because of his experience with two theological students who seemed to always be standing around talking about God during work hours. But what really did it was when the boss observed one go into the bathroom for 20 minutes. When the employee emerged, she said to his fellow student, I just had the most wonderful time. I read three chapters of John on the loo. (laughs) Presumably, those two Christian employees thought that the outward mark of being a Christian is that you don't have to serve your employer in work time if you can find something more godly to do with your time instead. But is that right? In 2 Thessalonians, Paul had to rebuke some Christians who'd given up working altogether, presumably because they thought they could spend their time doing more Christ-centered things. And when I was at university not so long ago, I was often guilty of the same thing. I would sometimes skip lectures in order to do things that I thought would be of greater service to Christ. But was that right? It's to this very issue that this morning's passage so helpfully offers us divine wisdom and help as we seek to discover how a believer can serve Christ in their daily work. Uh, And just to be clear this morning, when when we're talking about daily work and the workplace, I'm not just talking today about those of us who go into the office or just those of us in paid employment. No, by work today, we're talking about whatever it is that each of us is primarily employed in doing with our time each week. Uh, Whether it's that you work in an office, or uh, you look after your home, or you study at uni, or you take care of children, or something else besides. Whatever activities we find ourselves responsible for doing for a large chunk of our week, that's what we're talking about this morning. It's into all those kinds of activities and occupations that our passage so powerfully and beautifully speaks. Now, just before we, we dive into all of that, Let me just first address the fact that Paul was originally writing and addressing uh, slaves and masters, bond servants and masters. Because at times, some people have stumbled over Paul's words here, and they've wondered if Paul is, especially in calling slaves to obey their earthly masters, whether he's in some way endorsing slavery. But that simply isn't the case, and I'll just give you what I think are three important reasons. The first, quite simply, is that nowhere... Does the Bible, nowhere does the New Testament positively endorse slavery. Second, when we in the 21st century think of slavery, our minds immediately go to uh, that most abhorrent form of slavery that was the 19th century slave trade. That slave trade that was race based and entirely involuntary. The Bible clearly and outrightly condemns slave traders and that kind of slave trading. More than that, it was the Bible's very clear teaching on the dignity and worth of every human being that led um, 
heroic men and women of the faith like William Wilberforce and John Newton to campaign so passionately and successfully for the abolition of the slave trade. Not just here in our nation, but then subsequently in many other parts of the world as well. That was the, the, the influence of God's words. And thirdly, first century slavery, though far from ideal, was practiced quite differently from that 19th century kind. It bore, in fact, many similarities to work and employment today. Uh, so for one thing, approximately half of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. And in Rome itself, 80 to 90% of the people there, the residents, were slaves or former slaves. First century Roman slavery wasn't race-based. And a person could sell himself or herself into slavery to pay off debts or to try and achieve a better station in life. There are also a number of ways a slave could work to gain their freedom. And under Roman law, every slave had the right to be set free by the age of 30, if not before. And, and practically, slaves were employed in pretty much every kind of occupation. It was the slaves, the bond servants, who were the doctors and the teachers, the cleaners and the builders and the cooks and the child carers, the writers and even sometimes the political ambassadors. Basically, at this time, slaves and bond servants were the ones doing all of the work. That's the kind of people and the kind of work that Paul had in mind as he wrote these verses to bond servants and masters. Now, of course, none of that is to suggest that first century slavery was a good thing. Many slaves were treated poorly and they simply didn't have their own freedom. I'm also not suggesting this morning that our jobs are akin to slavery, however much we might not enjoy what we're doing often in our work. But here's the thing. While these verses would eventually play this uh, revolutionary role in the downfall of slavery, they were also immediately revolutionary for Paul's original readers. And they're meant to be revolutionary for us as we hear them this morning as well, in helping us to see how Christ can bring fullness and freedom into all of life, including our work, whatever it is we do as an occupation. So I think this passage here this morning lays out for us that the nature of that gospel freedom for our work in three ways. So we've got three headings for this morning. We're going to see that the gospel frees us from half-hearted work. The gospel frees us for whole-hearted work. The gospel frees us to know our glorious reward. First up then, the gospel frees us from half-hearted work. I, I think there's little that's more depressing in a task or a job, than to just feel like our hearts are not in it. Day in, day out, we feel like we, we, surely we could be doing something much more satisfying and something which we, we, we could muster up more enthusiasm, enthusiasm and passion for than the thing we're having to do. And so we can find ourselves increasingly half-hearted in our daily work and increasingly distracted from it. That is a depressing place to be, isn't it? It's a hard place to be. But what's the solution? Sometimes a change of job might be possible and even in order. But, but the slaves that Paul was writing to didn't have that option. And most of us, the vast majority of the time, do not have that option either. We don't have the option to change our daily occupation, nor should we try to. So how do we overcome that, that sort of half-hearted listlessness that we feel 
in our daily work. Well, Paul begins, verse 22, by saying, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So Paul starts out, first of all, by saying, be thorough and complete in your obedience to your earthly masters. Whether it's your employer or your line manager or your lecturer or your teacher, do all that they ask of you. Do all of the jobs that they give to you. Don't pick and choose between them. Don't make a distinction between the pleasant jobs and the unpleasant jobs. The interesting and the boring or the important versus the menial. And then only do the ones that appeal to you. No, assuming they're not asking you to sin, obey in everything your earthly masters. And then in case that wasn't outwardly challenging enough to our behavior, he then goes deeper into our motives as well. Verse 22, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers. I guess that slaves were probably quite unlikely to actually down tools and go on strike for fear that they'd be beaten or for fear that they'd be made homeless. But it's likely that some of them were at least tempted to just obey while their master was watching them. And no sooner was his back turned than they'd slack off from work, either for pleasure or perhaps if they were Christians, thinking they'd do something a bit more uh, spiritual with their time. But here, Paul tells them, tells us, we mustn't just obey by way of eye service. Eye service is what happens when rather than serving the whole person in front of you, really serving your boss or your teacher or your husband or wife or children, you just serve their eyes. You literally just become a slave to their eyes. You become an eye slave. You work hard while they're there to give the impression that you'll also be working hard when they're not there, but in actual fact, when they're not there, when they're not looking, you sit back and chill or you pursue some other projects. Sam Storms shares the, um, this following illustration of this kind of eye service. He says, a television commercial from several years ago beautifully illustrates what Paul has in mind. It portrayed an office where several employees took advantage of the boss's absence. They played games, took naps, and generally shirked their responsibilities. They received advance warning of his return to the office from the smell of an obviously unpleasant aftershave, providing them with time and opportunity to resume their duties and give the impression of having been diligently at work all along. But when the boss switched to the new aftershave being promoted in the commercial, he returned unannounced and caught them in the act. Love it. Or perhaps some of us are given to eye service in a different way, so that, so that you might work extremely hard all of the time and do what your boss wants, whether they're there or not, but you do it out of an unhealthy desire for their approval and their praise. You, 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 we do it to attract their attention and their compliments. That's another kind of eye service. So let me suggest some telltale signs of eye service on either side to be looking out for in ourselves. Signs that we're becoming mere slaves to our boss's eye. Perhaps a job that takes you half an hour when your boss is present takes you two hours when they're not there to watch you. Perhaps you find yourself having a near heart attack when they return unexpectedly with a change of aftershave because you wonder if they saw you scrolling through Facebook or Instagram. Perhaps your lunch break extends to an hour and a half when your boss goes on holiday when normally it's a nice tight 30 minutes. Perhaps you find yourself tempted to lie to your boss when they ask what you've been doing with your time recently. 
Maybe we judge how well our day has gone, not by how hard-working we've actually been, but simply by, by how hard-working we've made other people think we've been. Or, perhaps we're the kind of eye-servants who are driven to be absolute perfectionists in what we do, so that in one or two particular tasks, they just consume us and take far longer than they ought, all because we want others to be immensely impressed with us. Or maybe we get angry and resentful when our hard work goes unnoticed and envious and bitter when other people receive the attention and praise. Or maybe we find ourselves regularly overworking or overcommitting in certain areas of life in order to impress people, neglecting to rest or neglecting other vitally important responsibilities God's given us at home or in the church or elsewhere. Whatever kind of eye service you, or I, you and I attempted to pursue, and I suspect if you're like me, it's a bit of both on both sides, whether it's working just enough to fool the boss's eye or working way too much to catch and impress their eye, it's not proper conduct for the Christian believer. That's what Paul's words, God's word, is saying to us here. It reduces us to just being a people pleaser so that our highest motive for doing any work becomes what people think rather than working to please the Lord. Some people pleasers are lazy, some are workaholics, but neither are working to please the Lord. And then Paul adds a sober warning in verse 26. Just look down there. You know, lest we think he's making a mountain out of a molehill here, that these things don't really matter. No, he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. The Lord does not show partiality in these things. He doesn't favor the Christian over the non-Christian or the employee over the employer. He even warns the masters and the bosses and the line managers and the teachers and maybe some of us have something of that role in the work that we do. He warns them in chapter 4 verse 1 that they must treat their servants justly and fairly because they too have a master in heaven who will deal with them justly and fairly. The Lord does not show partiality. He won't agree and turn a blind eye to our half-hearted labor and say, well, you know, it's, you're absolutely right. Stuffing envelopes or working at the checkout or keeping a house in order or just going to classes or replying to emails or just, just nurturing children. Yeah, that's pretty dull and unimportant. So I'll just turn a blind eye to you neglecting those responsibilities so, so that you can go after more spiritual pursuits and do more kingdom work elsewhere. No. Because the gospel isn't intended to free us from our responsibilities in the work God has called us to do. It's meant to free us in them, not from them, but in them, to no longer do them with just half-hearted insincerity. As eye slaves and people pleasers, the gospel instead, and this is our second heading this morning, second point that Paul makes for us, is the gospel frees us for wholehearted work. So it frees us from half-hearted work. It frees us for wholehearted work. And, and this is good news. This is the good news of gospel freedom connecting and transforming our work. There is a way for us to do whatever we have to do each day wholeheartedly for the Lord. 
Now, I guess there are lots of people out there in the world who, to some extent, maybe they just find the right job that suits them, and they can work somewhat wholeheartedly in what they're doing in their own way. But only the Christian can do what's described here. At the end of verse 22, only the Christian can work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Consider first those words, fearing the Lord. To fear the Lord, to, and he's talking about Christ here in particular, to fear Christ is not to be terrified of him or frightened by him. It is to revere him and be in awe of him. It is to give him all the worship and honor that he is due. And, and you know, just, I'm sure you've seen this, just going by what we've read about Christ here in Colossians so far, in our series, that the reverence and the honour that is due to Christ is off the charts. It is immense because he is supreme over all things. To fear the Lord then means to be wholly taken up with him, delighting in him, delighting in his commandments and his holiness and his glory. It means acknowledging in the, the meditations of our heart and the exertion of our bodies that he is supreme over everything. That all things were created through him and all things, including our own selves and our time and our work and our energy, exists for him. Doing whatever we do in word or deed, in work or play, for him and him alone. That's what it means to fear the Lord. It is a beautiful thing that we've been rescued to. And it's that kind of reverence for Christ in our hearts that in turn provides us with the motive and the manner in which we do our work. So fearing the Lord leads to our working with sincerity of heart, second of all. This means working with a singleness of heart, a simplicity of heart. Not a servant of two masters, not a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, I mentioned earlier on about that tension we feel between how do I, I want to serve Christ, but I've got to do this and that and the other during the week. This is calling us to a simplicity and an almost a peace of heart in these things, a singleness of mind, a sincerity of heart. John Woodhouse writes, it is simply not the case that your allegiance to the Lord Jesus pulls you one way and your earthly obligations pull you the other. No, the Lord Christ, who is reordering the universe, does not pull us out of our earthly relationships but calls us to live in those relationships under him. This is incredibly freeing, I think, if we can grasp this. And we have to keep returning to this because I forget this. But the Christian at work is not ultimately trying to please 101 different people and all of their varying expectations. No, we're just working with singleness of heart for the audience of one for Christ the Lord. And just look at those words in verse 24. I think, I don't know whether Paul could do underlining or put it in bold, but I, he's, he's, I think he's sort of shouting these words at us. You are serving the Lord Christ. We feel like we're not serving Christ, but he says you are serving the Lord Christ. You are in your studies, in your board meetings, in your construction work in your financial accounting, in your parenting and your waitering or your nursing or your cooking, in fixing and cleaning and everything else, you are serving the Lord Christ. Just think about how this transforms even the most menial jobs and responsibilities that we might be called to do each week. 
We have been set free to do every one of them in the service of Christ. Which means everything we do for him is of immeasurable eternal significance. It is in honour of the king of kings. Just think about how working for a noble master in a task massively increases the dignity of that task. So imagine being a cleaner. Now actually I think cleaners are really important and they do a brilliant job. But we don't tend to think of it as the most esteemed position. But now imagine being a cleaner in Buckingham Palace for the Queen. Or imagine being a humble waiter, but in the courts of some ancient king, King Arthur and his knights. But those examples are as as nothing compared to our calling to do daily work, our daily work, whatever it is, in the name and in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of all things and the saviour of the world. That is far better still than working in Buckingham Palace for the Queen. Our work, however small and unimportant it might look, gets caught up into his glorious purposes, into the glorious cosmic purposes of the king whom we serve. And then that fresh realization that we are serving the Lord Christ, yes we are, that fresh realization results in our working heartily for him in whatever we do. Working heartily for him, Paul says, in whatever we do. And this right here, I think, is the secret to overcoming that listlessness and that lack of passion that we often experience. The secret to finding satisfaction and purpose in our work is not to keep jumping from one career or set of responsibilities to the next, not to keep bailing out or distracting ourselves the moment the work gets tough, not just slipping off to read three chapters of John when we ought to be working. Not doing those things just because work gets tough or repetitive or seemingly so mundane and unspiritual. The secret is, whatever you do, whatever the Lord has called you to do at the present time, in the job you have, in the uni course that you're enrolled in, in your role as maybe a homemaker or parent or carer or retiree, whatever you are doing, work heartily, says Paul. As for the Lord and not for men. It's a call to us not to neglect or swap our clear primary God-given responsibilities just because we think we could do something more noble or spiritual elsewhere. No, work heartily, he says, first and foremost, in the things that God has clearly called you to do. So if you're a student here this morning, uh, and I know some of you are still working really hard and others may have finished for now, If you're a student, work heartily at being a student. If you're employed, work heartily in the job that you're employed in. If you're a mother who's able to stay at home, work heartily at being a mother at home. If you're a mother who has to go out to work as well, then then trust the Lord to give you wisdom and grace on how to balance those two and strive to work heartily at both. And there's many more examples I could list. Now, now, heartily quite simply means, you probably guessed it, from the heart, with all of your heart. It's one clear way of, of applying Mark 12, verse 30. You know the, the greatest commandment that Jesus gave? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This, this is about worship. Worship in the workplace, worship in the housework, to do our work wholeheartedly for Christ. 
And the truth is, actually, if our service and our obedience was ultimately just for some earthly boss or, or for our family or for the approval of other people, though we could do it willingly, as Christians, we could never put our whole heart into it because such devotion would be idolatry. How do you devote yourself to an earthly thing in that kind of way? How can I wholeheartedly work if it's just about work for people here on earth? But once we see that all of our work can be and should be done for Christ, however great or humble the task, we are set free to put our whole heart into it, knowing that it is an act of true worship and service to our Lord. His, uh, this writer John Woodhouse again, he says, every obligation under which we labour, every burden that life puts upon us, Every pressure under which we are placed is transformed by the wonder of the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are liberated by Christ, but not from those things. We are free now to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are free to work, not under grudging compulsion, but from the center of our being, heartily, is more literally, from the soul, knowing that we are living for Christ, not for men. This right here is work redeemed. The futility of work when it was cursed at the fall, here it rises from the ashes and it begins to be restored to its original purpose and glory, to the place where all work is an expression of worship to the Lord. The only thing secular about work, says Charles Garriott, is the way we view and treat it. Work is not, does not have to be a secular thing if we do it for the Lord. To work with sincerity and wholeheartedness is serving Christ if we do it for Christ, in dependence upon him and in the way that he prescribes. Obeying our human bosses and teachers and masters, yet not to please people, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The gospel frees us for that. Frees us to be wholehearted people wherever we find ourselves to devote our daily work and efforts to him and strive to serve him wherever he calls us if that sounds like quite hard work and and it is hard work it's hard work to keep our minds and our hearts fixed there if it sounds like it's difficult to keep going and it often is there's one more massive encouragement that Paul lays out for us here as well and it's our third and Final heading this morning. The gospel frees us to know our glorious reward. Uh, Let's let's ask the question, why be wholehearted? What's our motivation for doing this? What's the the draw? Why do it? Uh, One website I found encourages people to be wholehearted in their work for the following reasons. Uh, And this is not a Christian website. It's just out there to help people, I guess, find some meaning in their work. It says, be wholehearted because such a passion will energize you and fuel your success. It will strengthen your confidence in your abilities, your decisions, and your potential. And it will inspire the persistence it takes to make your dreams reality. Okay, that all sounds kind of impressive, but Paul's motivation in verse 24 is quite different and better by far. Have a look at verse 24. He says, We're doing this knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
See, with that word knowing, Paul is, Paul is encouraging his readers to keep a certain thing in view, to, to be repeatedly motivated by a particular thing. So what is it that ought to motivate us as we work? What is it that's supposed to drive us on? It's our rewards. And, and Paul here is not just talking about a monthly paycheck. If you do happen to get one of them for the work that you do, maybe you don't. He's talking about the future inheritance that every Christian, every, every Christian servant will one day receive from the Lord. It's the same inheritance that he mentioned in Colossians 1 verse 5. He called it there, the hope laid up for you in heaven. Something the Apostle Peter described as a living hope. 1 Peter 1.4, he calls it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is our present inheritance kept in heaven, waiting for us. And perhaps the reality is your career right now doesn't promise a luxury retirement or a company car or much of a prospect of ever receiving a pay rise and better pay. Perhaps you only earn just enough to survive and no more. Perhaps the cost of living crisis at the moment is actually tipping you over the edge. And, and let me just stress, if you're a part of the church family here, if you're here this morning and you are ever in financial difficulty like that, please do let us know. We are here together as a church. We will help you. Perhaps the work you do each day doesn't pay anything at all. Perhaps at times it seems to offer the very opposite of a reward. Maybe you tidy up after people only for them to mess it up again. Maybe you cook meals only for people to look less than enamored with what you've made. Maybe you have broken sleep in the night to care for children only to have them wake you up at the crack of dawn looking full of enthusiasm and wanting to be entertained. Whatever it is, often our work doesn't seem to carry any reward at all. In all sorts of ways, present rewards are rarely enough to stir up wholehearted sincerity in us. But there is a far greater future reward that awaits us as servants of Christ. Because amazingly here, every Christian, even the lowliest Christian slave, and this must have kind of um, just uh, knocked the Christian slaves in the congregation for six to think this could be speaking about them. Every single Christian is given the same motivation for serving and obeying Christ as Abraham was given when he packed up his tent and set off towards the promised land. It is the promise of a heavenly inheritance. You can go read Hebrews 11 uh, later on to see how uh, it's described there, that heavenly inheritance that Abraham followed God for. So that by faith, both he and we can be obedient in whatever work and service God has called us to because we're looking forward to this heavenly city whose designer and builder is God. Looking forward to that time when God has promised that he will dwell with us and us with him forever. Talk about making the prospect of only working for a wage packet and a pension look dull and unexciting. This reward is the real deal, especially when we remember that it won't be given to us as our earnings or what we deserve. It is a gift of unmerited, measureless grace and a gift that completely redeems us from a, from a life of rewardless effort. God is the one who has qualified you and me to share in this inheritance. 
God has qualified us for this reward that we do not deserve. It's all of grace. But how, oh how it should liberate us and motivate us to devote all that we do to the service of Christ, including our daily work. This, this promised reward is meant to win our hearts over from mere people-pleasing and half-hearted efforts to the assurance of fullness and freedom as we work heartily in our everyday tasks for the Lord. And just to be really clear, this, this isn't some kind of uh, magic three-step plan to make us the perfect worker or guarantee to always give us fullness of joy in our work. As we strive to serve Christ in our work, we, we shouldn't expect to always get this right or to suddenly find it easy to work heartily for him. No, we should expect to keep encountering sin remaining in our hearts. We should expect to keep finding, as we strive to do this, further evidence of our daily need for a saviour. We'll keep seeing evidence of that. But Christ our saviour is with us each day. He goes into our work with us in word and spirit to help us and strengthen us in whatever it is that God has called us to do. As someone once wisely said, and I'll end with these words, the Christian life invites us each day to live an ordinary life in an extraordinary way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Once again, Lord, we ask that what we have heard would now dwell in us richly as your people together. Please help us, Lord, to work heartily in all things as for the Lord Jesus himself, our Saviour and King. And Father, we thank you for that great inheritance that awaits us, our great undeserved reward, the hope of heaven, the hope of an eternal home with you. Lord, please help us to live each day now in light of that coming day, living what might look very much like an ordinary life most days, but in a quite extraordinary way faithfully, wholeheartedly, and all for you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.